The Third Magpie by M.S. Clements, read by Hannah Timms. Episode 9 False Comfort St. Dymphna's Hospital, aged 18 It is the unmistakable malodor that betrays my exact location. Those regular trips to hospitals and clinics to soothe my mother's worries have left their mark on my sense of smell. They all have that same stomach-churning stench of antiseptic fear and anxiety. I am in the ground-floor room, and to my left, a large window looks out onto a central square. Hospital staff and visitors hurry past to avoid the persistent rain. Umbrellas twirl cheerfully bright as though to spite the December gloom. One lady's umbrella is red with glistening snowflakes. I imagine what she might choose for summer rain, something fresh, distorted flowers beneath giant raindrops, perhaps. The lady exits the square and I am alone again. On the windowsill there is a miniature Christmas tree. Well, not really a Christmas tree, more a stick sprayed with white paint and daubed with glitter. It resembles one I made at school. Mum insists on putting it up in the dining room next to Evie's papier-mâché robin and Andy's toilet roll sanner. The tree in this room is covered with miniature baubles and fairy lights flashing intermittently. Other ornaments attempt to transport me from here and trick my brain into believing that I could be at home. A normal family home covered in garish decorations and lights. A house full of children and hassled adults waiting for the big day. This isn't my imitation home. I'll deny it, but lying here in this hospital bed is where I will be spending Christmas. The silence of the room is disturbed by a rustle of paper. I turn over to see a youngish man reading a magazine, a nurse, judging from his uniform, sitting in one of those obligatory blue vinyl chairs that only seem to exist next to hospital beds. He folds up the magazine on, noticing that I'm awake, greeting me with a friendly, broad smile. His hand reaches forward to touch my arm, that electricity that comes with human contact shocks me and I jerk my arm back. He leans forward, grasping my hand in his. This time, I only feel comfort and reassurance. Hello, my name is Mohammed, but everyone calls me Mo. How are you feeling now, Michael? Finn's world had descended into grey melancholy, hushing all, even the birds. Beyond the gate, Carl's steps echoed within the frozen leaves snapping beneath his boots. The birds did not take flight, and Finn remained rigid. There you are. Do you realise it's absolutely freezing out here? Carl shuffled up beside his friend on the bench and began his usual examination of the lunchbox. The search was rewarded and he held up an apple in triumph. Are you going to eat this? Finn turned to see what Carl was scavenging. 
shook his head and returned his attention to a bare tree. His friend's teeth sank into the red skin of the apple, the crunch piercing the silence. He chewed the white juicy flesh with greedy gulps, swallowed, ending with the licking lips of a hunger satisfied. Finn exhaled, the cold air turning his breath into white wisps rising up into the clouds. He imagined each one of those wisps carrying part of him back across the Albion Sea to his family and the safety of home. Carl placed a mittened hand on Finn's back, drawing him into the graveyard. You okay, Finn? You look like shit. Thanks, I'm fine. I needed some fresh air. Fresh air? Christ, Finn, it's minus three at the moment. The only thing you'll be getting is pneumonia. Come on back to the staff room. We do have heating, you know. Carl tugged at Finn's arm, but he jerked it back, frustrating his friend's attempt to encourage him indoors. Oh, come on, Finn. You need to come in. This is ridiculous. You can't keep eating out here. Finn touched the brass plaque with his bare fingers, their heat producing circles of clarity onto its iced surface. I like to share my lunch with Eloise Phillips. 1879 to 1956. Beloved wife, mother and grandmother. She is a quiet lunch companion, never complains, never judges. A rotten corpse with no prejudices. Carl snorted. Don't be so sure. They were just as nasty then as they are today. They kept it undercover though. A veneer of kindness and tolerance to barely cope their true tendencies. She'd be as quick to judge and condemn you as any patriot today. As long as there is someone more miserable than them, then all is right in the world. I hope it's hot where she is. I hope she is fucking burning. Carl's anger captured Finn's attention. What's happened? I got a notification letter about Sai this morning. The fucking bastards have extended his re-education programme. Six months minimum. No visitation rights. I was going to see him at Christmas. He's my only family. It's not fair. It's just not fair. Carl's comedic release valve had failed him. How could there be comedy when dealing with the barbarism of New Albany? All he did was drive the family to the border. Nothing more. They were his friends. He wanted to help them. Instead, he had to watch them being shot in the back of the head. All of them. Mum, Dad and three kids. Their only crime, wanting a better life for their kids. Wanting freedom. Carl glared back towards the school and the girlish chatter from lunchtime gossiping. I'm so glad I don't have any. It's not a life for them here, lad. Even if they are patriots. He got up to leave, putting his hand on his friend's shoulder, squeezing it slightly. Are you so sure you want to bring children into this disgrace of a world? A northerly wind bit away at any exposed flesh. The first five minutes of his lesson were taking up with girls unwrapping themselves from various layers of scarfs, hats, coats and gloves. Consequently, they ignored him during the last five minutes when they began the laborious task of wrapping themselves up again. He didn't really mind, but he would have preferred if they were able to do it quietly. The headaches were getting worse. For Finn, there wasn't a sound so torturous as the high-pitched squeal of an overexcited girl. 
The persistent cough didn't help either. Finn longed for each day to end. The icy roads had made it too slippery to cycle to work. This meant an hour and a half's walk to get back. Fortunately, it being a Monday, he could relish an evening free of Miss Fry. Pushing the thought of her to the back of his mind, he tried to refocus on his lesson. Finn surveyed the class before him, rows of teenage girls, dull with post-lunch lethargy. One girl wiped the condensation off the window, and at the back, another two were giggling, their phones springing to life every few seconds. They didn't need to know about Emma Woodhouse's matchmaking. They were busy with their own. He coughed, both to clear his throat and to gain their attention. <clears throat> Would you rather have freedom to make your own mistakes and learn from them, or have your life closely regulated by others, letting them take all the important decisions for you? The girls at the back of the class weren't interested, so Finn nodded to an eager girl at the front. Miss Taylor, what do you think? I would much rather my father took the decisions. He has more experience and his choices are more informed. There are fewer chances of mistakes. Don't you think that would be relinquishing your ability to take decisions? In effect, infantilising you. Before Miss Taylor had a chance to reply, Finn began to cough. He used his handkerchief to smother it, but to no avail. His lungs required him to cough. He was struggling to breathe, becoming increasingly light-headed. Waving a free hand behind him, he tried to locate a chair. School protocol ignored, he had to sit down. Are you okay, Mr Michael? asked Miss Taylor. Finn nodded, indicating she should continue. Resting an elbow on the desk, he leant his aching head against his hand, listening to Miss Taylor drone on about the importance of obedience. Without it, you'd end up with anarchy, and the likes of Harriet are the sad result. Failure to follow the rules of society can only lead to social disgrace, she said. All energy to argue the point had deserted him. The child's assertions becoming white noise while he watched the hour hand on the classroom clock. He was as keen to end the lesson as the sleepy girls. The bell rang, muffled by the scramble to abandon his classroom. Two hats, three gloves and a scarf lay forgotten on the floor. He intended to tidy them up, but wobbled as he bent to pick them. It was time to go home. Someone else could clear up for a change. Through the kitchen door, he saw the cottage wait in silent darkness. He didn't mind. He had plans. Draw the curtains, light the stove, make a hot drink and curl up under a blanket with one of the books they kept hidden inside the sofa, each dog-eared and barely together. He was relishing the idea of the comforting evening ahead. He might even close his eyes and imagine being back in the lazy luxury of the Melbourne sitting room. Those blissful thoughts were shoved away by the incessant dripping from the outside tap. Finn picked up a torch from the windowsill and shone it on the culprit. A steady stream of droplets glistened in the light. He tried to turn the brass tap, but it refused to budge. It was frozen solid. Sophie. 
Sophie shook her head at the shadow coughing in front of her. You should be inside, in the warm. Come on, that can wait. Finn was fumbling to fix the tap while balancing the torch between his chin and his chest. I've nearly finished. If I don't do it now, we risk burst pipes. Then we'll be stuck. There. All done. Clever boy. Now get inside. Sophie tried to guide her husband towards the kitchen door, but reluctant to abandon his task, he pulled back, shining the torch into the box by his feet. He bent double to peer more closely. I'm sure there's some lag. The hacking cough returned, violently shaking him. Sophie reached out, helping him to stand upright. It can wait until morning. No, it's going to be... Um... Going... To be... I don't feel... So well. His initial vomiting over, Sophie sat him on the bench, gently rubbing her hand along his back. He was still trembling and his skin felt clammy. Ever prepared, she found a tissue in her uniform pocket and dabbed his mouth, wiping away the spittle that had gathered in the corners. The initial relief after being sick would soon disappear and she needed to get him into the house and into bed. How do you feel now? Sophie asked when she returned from the kitchen. I'm sorry I made your uniform dirty. She kicked away her clothes from the bedroom chair and lay down the tray of drinks. Don't be daft. Come on, let's get you into bed. You'll soon start to feel better after some rest. I've made elderberry tea. That will help. His trembling had upgraded to teeth-chattering shivers while he fumbled with the buttons on his shirt. Eventually, after pushing the little white disc through the hole, he let out a victorious sigh that slightest of exertions making him pause before engaging in battle with the next button. Let me do that, said Sophie, moving to sit by Finn. She undid each of the remaining buttons and helped him out of his clothes. Once in bed, Finn shut his eyes and lifted his hands over his ears, complaining about the noise in their bedroom. There was no noise. Sophie checked his pulse and pressed her fingers against his forehead. She didn't need the thermometer to tell her that Finn had a fever. A call to the guardhouse medical centre would mean the arrival of an unknown, minimally trained medical officer, his scant knowledge considered sufficient for the DIA medical service. Dr Thatcher would come at a high price, a price she accepted. I'll call Henry. Finn squeezed her wrist, preventing her from leaving his side. No, don't do that. It's, it's only a cough. I stood up too quickly, that's all. I'll, I'll be fine in the morning. We don't need to go to the expense of Henry. We both know it's not just a cough. You can't go to work like this. I've got to tell the guardhouse if you're sick. You know that. At least we have the advantage of a doctor we know. The green light on Theo caught her attention. Sophie was not in the mood to deal with the spy in the bedroom. They hadn't said anything incriminating, but even so. Sophie collected up the cushions from the bed and piled them over the wretched spy attached to the wall. If they must listen, then let it be muffled speech. Henry unpacked his medical bag onto Sophie's dressing table, pushing aside her makeup bag and the framed wedding photo. The accoutrements of the modern Albion doctor were laid out. A tablet with a detachable microchip reader, 
a digital thermometer and a stethoscope. Not much change in 30-odd years. Sophie had met Henry at university and he was keen for her to join his practice after she qualified. There was virtually nothing that she didn't know about the man. A good doctor and dedicated patriot, he carried himself with the perpetual air of arrogance that came to those who believed themselves superior. First things first, we need to check you are who you say you are, he said, pointing the reader at Finn's bangle. He waited for the long G-sharp whine, then plugged the reader into the tablet. The screen awoke with the security headshots. Front view, left view, right view. Well, that's you okay. 568216-2-MI. Michael Finlay. Henry scrolled down the screen until he came to the section for medical details, tapping it to enter the file. This is such a fag, but it needs to be done. Ah, here we go. Right. OK, Michael. Let's begin, shall we? It didn't take him long to examine Finn. He stood up and shot a look back at Sophie. Flu. No surprises there. You know the drill. Plenty of fluids. Paracetamol to bring down the fever. I don't have to tell you your job, do I? You're my most experienced nurse. Sophie didn't reciprocate his smile. Instead, she pushed the chair next to the bed and held Finn's hand. A lock of damp hair was stuck across his eye. She lifted it away, quietly telling him to go back to sleep. Behind her, Henry gossiped on about co-workers and the next day's schedule. She looked over her shoulder and not wanting to disturb Finn, she whispered, Do you think they'll confine him to home for long? Dunno, he said. He had Sophie's wedding picture in his hand. Putting it down, he added, I don't have anything to do with DIA medical confinements. You need to speak to Captain Kendrick down at his guardhouse in the morning. He'll give you all the details. He walked over to the bed, peering at Finn from over Sophie's shoulder. Word is, this outbreak is nasty. Kendrick tells me that the fever tends to worsen as the illness develops. The authorities don't want it spreading and they're being unusually tough. There's talk about emergency regulations and we'll have to comply. There can be no exceptions where disease control is concerned. She felt his hand on her shoulder, hot and firm. Shall we go downstairs to discuss matters? I expect you'll also need some time off. I'm sure we'll come to an arrangement. Henry was at the door, eager to depart. Normally so self-assured, he appeared uneasy, darting looks along the landing. Sophie tucked Finn's hand back under the sheet and heaved herself off the chair. I'll show you out and we can discuss payment in the kitchen. Thank you for listening to this production of The Third Magpie. To support our work, please consider buying or gifting a digital copy of The Third Magpie from Amazon or post a review on Goodreads. Register at pageupbooks.co.uk to stay in touch with future projects. That's pageupbooks, P-G-U-P, like the key on your keyboard, P-G-U-P, books.co.uk. Thank you.